Hey, Augmenters. I'm Julie. And I'm Jimmy. And we know that great leaders have great mentors. And today we are diving deep with Robert Mundy, health policy activist, social worker, and an advisor on bringing trauma-informed healing into connected relationships. Rob teaches us how to connect better with others through a token. Think of the book at book club. You don't actually talk about the book much. You're there for the community. You will learn how to grow to your potential via the oldest and simplest golden rule. Treat others as you wish to be treated, but on the reverse. So many service people and folks who identify as helpers forget that they deserve the same help that they give to other people. This entire episode is about the principle of connection. You're going to hear right away how warm and rigorous Rob is in his approach to help others. Here we go. Rob Mundy, we are so happy you are here today. Welcome to Augmenters. How are you doing? Thank you. Yeah, great. Really glad to be here. Thank you. Cool. Well, Rob, I am really excited for this conversation for a bunch of reasons. One, I know you play basketball with Jimmy, and I am not totally sure how good Jimmy is actually at basketball because I've never seen him play. So we're going to talk about that later. Mm -hmm. We have a lot of things going on because we're also so excited to talk to you because you are a therapist, you're a social worker, you are a health policy advocate, and we are going to talk today specifically about trauma and how to communicate more empathetically in mentoring relationships. This is such an important topic. We are very excited to dig in with you. Yeah, I'm excited. Thank you for having me again. Yeah, Rob, this is going to be great. I'm also excited to hear more about how to communicate empathetically when uh, you are one of the fastest talkers I know. So I assume part of communicating empathetically is listening. And uh, I'm excited to listen about you talking rapidly about how to listen better. It's funny you say that because so I'm from Jersey and I, my first social work role after graduating from social work school was in North Carolina. And I had to learn <laughs> oh, no. things very quickly about doing rural, rural therapy too, was people don't swear as much as I was used to. And you have to talk about half as fast. And they were, everyone was very polite about it, but I had to realize really quickly, you've got to adapt to the people you're supporting. Otherwise, it'll go right past them. Oh my God, that is a huge learning. And I have the exact same problem living in Brooklyn. I was just in California mm-hmm. and I was like, I just wanted to leave the conversations. I'm like, just what are, what do you, what gets to the point? Who laid back? Okay, what to do? I mean, seriously, come on. All this relaxing, palm trees, I don't get it. But speaking of speaking quickly and getting right into it, Rob, Most of our guests tell us that a mentor is somebody who believed in them before they believed in themselves. So we would love to hear a little bit more about you. Who was your mentor who believed in you before you believed in yourself? I've been really lucky to have so many and I didn't define them as mentors until I got older Mm. because I was so lucky to have so many. They were just people in my life. And I only realized actually as I got older, especially working for and with other people who didn't have the benefits that I did, these people were really foundational in my life. Uh, One I think of very strongly is my dad, who was raised by my grandparents for a bit with my twin brother and lived with my dad and my stepmom. And my dad definitely stopped some intergenerational patterns in my family that I didn't come to realize had existed until I was older. And I only benefited. And so I was not subject to some of the harms he was. And I got to see what a healthier masculinity was before I even knew that was a thing, right, as a boy. And so... As I was growing up, it became much easier then for me to welcome in 
people through being vulnerable and being allowed to ask for help in a way that I see a lot of other dudes don't really feel they have the permission to. So dad would be number one for sure. And then another big figure for me is um, I volunteered at Catholic Charities working with refugees for a number of years, and I still support refugees in our communities. And a woman there, Priscilla, will be in my heart for oh, forever for the way that she... She taught me how to assertively be compassionate without being aggressive, without pushing people away. And just by continually showing that you're here to show up to be loving and caring. And I just texted her before this call, actually, to thank her for her role in my life, thinking about her. Yeah. So I've been, again, very lucky throughout my life to have these people. Tell me about Priscilla. How did she model that behavior for you? What do you, what do you remember? Give me a memory and like to tell me about what the place was, like the look, the feel, the smell. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we were, um, I met her at Catholic Charities doing refugee support work as a volunteer case manager. This was back in about 2015, 2016. And one of the best ways to support refugees in our communities is not to say we have case management services because that's a really Western and Americanized version of help. It's a definition Mm. that doesn't make a lot of sense to people for whom case management never existed and and central support services often didn't exist. And so we offered things that were practically useful. And one of the most practically useful things to newcomers to America is English support. So ESL classes. So I would go in and offer English language support at our classes. And in the course of doing that, you get to have really dynamic conversations about where people come from, what they're looking to learn, right? Through the language they want to learn, the specific words and phrases. And we get to talk about culture. We get to talk about how, what they bring to our country and what they're looking to discover. And uh, Priscilla was so helpful at coming to people exactly as they are and being simply herself with no pretension um, and then continually thinking how to solve problems and never blaming a person for what were ultimately social obstacles to health and healing. Wow. Okay. You've already touched on three things that I feel like we could spend an entire episode (laughs) about. One, of course, related to your dad. So I would love to get back to that. As you're talking about with masculinity, And having a different role model, I feel like there is sometimes a barrier around mentoring for men that we've heard in the sense that they feel maybe they don't have the confidence to have enough to offer, or they feel like they maybe have some patterns that have been hard for them to get through to be able to share really authentically and vulnerably. Could you tell us a little bit more about maybe how that has shown up in your work or in your life? Yeah, sure. And it's, it's so true. I mean, I've I've been a community therapist until my most recent role my entire career. So I was working in nonprofits across the country doing trauma work, often with children and young people. And overwhelmingly, I would be one of only one or two guys in the entire program. And not only that, I'd be one of the only two guys, maybe three, in a child's whole life. So a father or father figure, me, and then usually not a teacher, not a therapist, you know, not a principal, nobody. And so it became really apparent that, especially for my boys that I was working with, that it made a lot of sense why they didn't know what vulnerability looked like and how to express it for boys. And and I learned, I think I tried to learn pretty quickly to not blame both kids and young people for that failing. Because again, I had benefits that they didn't. I was allowed to be vulnerable. I was allowed to explore what that meant. And I had models for how to be vulnerable out loud. That again is a huge part of being compassionate, right? It's it's walking into a room and saying, I don't know everything, but I'm looking to work with you to help you heal. Are you able to say that in the beginning of a conversation or like how do you how do you actually bring that tone? Because that's really more of a feeling. Like I have to assume that when you're talking, especially to a youth, you don't come in and say, 
you know, it's okay to be vulnerable? Yeah, it's a great question, right? And I think it's, and refugee work has taught me this so much, right? So when, let's take, for example, working with somebody for whom English might be their fourth language, which is often the case for our refugees. They already know three and they're trying to learn their fourth and they're in the fourth culture in many instances too. And so we don't have the benefit of like precise language. We don't have the, of a shared precise mm. language. We don't have the benefit of a script that we can use for everybody. So instead it's how we show up in the room and it's how we ask meaningful, compassionate questions. So for example, when I was working with kids, we'll switch to kids. Often as a therapist, you have to ask a ton of questions up front, And that's really tough because basically what I'm doing is I'm asking you to unpack sometimes some of the most difficult experiences of your life first with some vague promise that will heal later, right? And that's why a lot of intakes are tough for a lot of people because I'm asking you to let me in without any perceived benefit yet. And so when I do my intake, I don't, when I was doing my intakes with children, I wouldn't look at the page. I would tell them they can take breaks. I'd let them know that there are some questions on here I just wanna know because I'm curious about you. And when kids see that, that you genuinely care, they'll tell you a thousand things and then I can slot that back into where the answers need to be, right? So I think it's really treating children as authentic tellers of their own story and finding ways to just keep resetting that in your head. Like, how can I let this kid tell their story? And Rob, what are some of those questions? Yeah, yeah. So, so one of the most important ones, and it's super obvious, is, and this does not actually appear on, like, say, a clinical intake. When you walk into my office, you're assuming there'll be clinical questions, like, what were your, what's your diagnostic history? List me all your trauma. And instead, starting by what's fun at school, <laughs> right? You know, what, what do you like to do? Do you hoop? And that worked really well. Like, and Jimmy would appreciate this. I played basketball with a ton of kids and I was an outpatient and outpatient therapy. And I would never just let them win ever, regardless of <laughs> ever. And but a lot they of sometimes my kids actually win. <laughs> uh, sometimes they would. Yeah, 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 they would. I mean, I worked also with like eight and nine year olds, right? So if I'm getting beat, they were either really good or I was having a really bad day. But no, I wouldn't. And one of the reasons I did that was because that was a way to also show I was being authentic. Like I'm not here to BS you. Like, I'm not going to crush you in a game, but I'm also not going to treat you like some fragile, broken thing, which unfortunately was the way many of my children, especially my boys, were treated because they were believed to be both fragile and explosive. Mm. When in fact, there was a whole range of middle ground that we could walk together in. And it was about saying, look, we can show up and be competitive, for instance, and still care for each other. And I think for a lot of boys, that act itself was really healing. Can you say that again? The middle ground between fragile and explosive. Yeah, there we go. Fragile and explosive. Yeah. That is, I, I've never put those two words together, I think, in the same sentence. Uh, yeah. The, the reason why I do is, I'm sorry, Jimmy, for cut, cutting you off, but the reason I do is because people don't think of boys as being fragile. They don't think of men who, are, who appear to be potentially violent as fragile because they themselves don't want to be that way and because we don't allow vulnerability for so many boys and men. We just think of it as the anger they possess and they display. Wow. Because most of the at least I would say in kind of like the, the inclusive or the equity conversations that we hear, those often talk about fragility, not on the other end of then being explosive and having this kind of like outpouring of rage is almost like an outpouring of like self-sympathy for failings, talking about white fr fragility mm -hmm. over time. So the explosive part I mean, I guess I, it's hard for me to see like the continuum. You know what I mean? Like, like I just, I never thought them together on a line, fragile and explosive before. Again, coming back to questions, like what would be some of the things that would help? And I guess also help the, the boys find their in-between, between fragile and explosive as well. Yeah. So I, I think my answer when I'm asked, I've been asked questions like that in the past and my boring and annoying answer is it depends. <laughs> and it's going to depend on, on what your Wait, child Wait, you mean you can't just give me an answer, Rob? Yeah. Like, <laughs> 
Just give it to me. Come on. I man. wish, man. If I could do that, man, I could make make a lot more money in this field. Um, but no, I don't, and I'm, I'm glad that there isn't a simple. Yeah, I'm glad there isn't a simple answer to be honest. So the answer is, what are they going to tell? Often with children too. What are they going to tell you when they're so? What can they when they're feeling comfortable when they're doing something? And children learn so much better through play and expression through play than just by talking with me across a desk. It's true of adults too, but adults don't want to admit that. Adults will also process much better with play. Um, is that why we talk to each other so much while we're putting up jumpers? Genuinely, probably, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Probably yeah. is, right? When we're out hooping, we get a lot of a lot of stuff done, right? Right? There's a lot of stuff out there. We try to solve all the world's problems and we only miss about half the shots. So, I mean. Yeah. Well, Jimmy, maybe you. Yeah. Jimmy makes all of his. I miss all of mine and we get about 50%. <laughs> You're so full of it. Uh, But no, so to the question, right? So there are lots of ways to get to that topic, but really I think it's less about what to say and more how to create the setting Well, they will tell you. Mm. Like most of the most important information I've gotten from both children and adults as I help people navigate health crises and traumatic events has been setting that stage and letting them tell me because they have resilience, they have an, an ability to share what's important to them and what their goals are. Tell me what's going to help. And that's really a significant part of my role that I wish more people understood. And frankly, the better we take care of social workers and allow them to feel well, the more they'll be able to activate that energy as opposed to constantly feeling obligated to solve problems because we can't do that well. We're not, we're actually not great problem solvers. We're great listeners and we're great at helping you solve the problem. I would love to take that and think about it if possible, from the lens of adults, um, because a lot of our audience is working in men, they are, you know, potentially in the professional setting, they are either mentoring within their organization as a mentor or a mentee, or they're mentoring folks outside of their organization, Mm -hmm. but also in a professional setting. And I think that idea of play or that idea of how do you get beyond? We always joke about, you know, the idea of a mentor is like behind this big mahogany desk with like, you know, some older guy with his paunch hanging out and like, I don't know, whatever, like a big cup of coffee and telling you how it is and how it should be. But are there ways that you could imagine kind of in, you know, working with adults that there could be this element of play to maybe be able to get some of that vulnerability out, which we know, of course, leads to better outcomes than just you know, kind of being the very heady intellectual kind of conversations. Yeah, for sure. And it'll vary by setting. And, and I appreciate that connection. Absolutely. Right. And so there are lots of ways to do this. And I think what I'll share is, so my current role allows me to think critically about for all the direct service professionals in America, the people who are right now handling the crises, but also bearing witness to multiple health and social failures going on, whether it's housing, you know, affordability, health. It's not just the conversations that I think stick with them, it's the lack of empowerment to do much about the outcome. So they have to bear witness, but they're not empowered to change anything. It's like knowing the future, but being powerless to do something about it. And that powerlessness can be incredibly draining, right? And so as I was thinking about that in my current role, I tried to think about what would I have wanted when I was doing that work that I wasn't able to get. So now I offer what are called self-care and crisis management workshops. And I recognize I'm recalling your question about play, and this does not sound like play. And I promise that there's a reason I'm bringing this up. Okay. So we you often do that basketball so court. <laughs> they just feel like blessed that you're in the room. <laughs> yeah. So, but genuinely, right? So when I come, if I let's and I, we talk about for the record, we talk about suicide crisis. So I, I specifically provide them 
series of tools to help them manage somebody's crisis involving suicide. And I think too often in our helping fields, we don't imagine crisis and self-care as being fundamentally two sides of the same coin. They cannot operate without one another. There is no assessment to my knowledge, and I've looked at a lot of them for suicide, for crisis management of any sort, that references the self-care of the person doing the screen as equally important as the screen itself. It doesn't exist. Wow. And so I've worked to develop that, to make that possible for people. And the reason I bring this up is to say, you would think a conversation about self-care and crisis management in these settings would never have any jokes, would never have any opportunity for talk back. It would be a solemn affair. And it really isn't. When people feel heard and they feel like there's an opportunity to process these experiences, we've laughed a lot about some of the absurdities of our work and about the difficulty of, of self-care. One of the topics that comes up a lot with self-care is I always ask the question at some point once people are comfortable talking about it, after we've let some air back in our lungs after talking about crisis management, is what do you do for self-care? Inevitably, someone mentions reading. And I wait a beat and I say, okay, what do you read? And some people will pause and say, oh, I don't know. And I'll be like, listen, I really want you to say it. You read trashy romance and everyone needs to hear it. We need to talk about how reading can be complete junk. And that's great. That's fantastic. Not like historic biographies and, you know, like... (laughs) Bad sci-fi, trashy romance, like self-care is about you. And I bet when you say it, 20 other people will be like, oh, thank God they said it. I'm so glad I had permission <laughs> and to can talk you, And about can you it. give me the title of the last book, please? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. And I, I should do that in the future. That's a great idea. But this is to say there's that kind of laugh, the, the exhale in the room of, oh, right, I'm not alone now. Mm-hmm. I have permission to talk about this together, and this really helps. So you are actually going around doing self-care or you're starting self-care book clubs and that's how people will be able to then build their own communities where the air is let back in to actually share how they're feeling because everybody knows you go to book club not talk about the book but just to gab what's going on in your life yeah it's true right so that'd be a great (laughs) right that'd be a great is that what you two do (laughs) we should i'm going to keep using rob's framing which is when people feel comfortable when they're at play in a comfortable setting they're going to share better so when people have already found, you know, a, a shared community of loving books, then they can sit down and the book might be on the table, but it doesn't have to be in front of everybody's right. mind. Right. It's the space the book creates. It's almost symbolic in that way. And there are lots of ways to make that work in corporate settings too. It may not be a book, but it could be all kinds of practices where you may meet with somebody and there may be a, a subject on everybody's Google calendar, what we're going to cover. But it can also be through that work of creating that healthy, loving space. It doesn't have to be about that subject. It can be about meaning. It can be about hope. It can be about what brings you back to work each day. Those are allowable subjects to talk about if people are comfortable talking about them. I love that. And I think the thing that really just stuck with me as part of that conversation is around the self-care of the mentors and being able to to find space for them to connect with each other and share their experiences, but also find ways to really take care of themselves too. Because I think some of the barriers to mentoring is this idea of, I'm not going to know what to say. I'm not going to know what to do. You know, what if somebody brings up something that I really can't handle? They may tell me something that I don't even know what to say to that. So I love that idea of having a way that the mentors can kind of congregate around something that's fun, that brings like some joy to them to help take care of themselves as well. I'd love to probe, if you don't mind, talking a little bit more about, to be honest, trauma and talking about trauma has probably never been talked about in the corporate environment until maybe the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. I'd say it's something that's coming up, especially as Jimmy mentioned around DEI work. Could you kind of like define trauma for us or trauma informed conversations? I don't know any of the language around it. So maybe you can school us a little bit on the language around it. And then also maybe how, what kind of role could a corporate environment play with it? And if I could kind of prime some of this, Rob, mm-hmm. this is amazing when Julie and I are so on the same page. 
I am currently on page 41 of your wellness toolkit, chapter three, how to manage trauma exposure, which is the page under the language of harm exposure. And you have four different phrases there, which is what uh, jumped out at me. And uh, you had told me one uh, on the court, vicarious trauma. And there's also, you know, three others. If you could maybe start with that, just about the language of harm exposure, what even how that means to trauma, like just giving us, you know, more ways to better understand this feeling. And for sure. Yeah. I think there's this myth that there is a power to the word trauma rather, not a myth, but a real power to it, or perhaps power the way the myths have that they are foundations that we view our worlds that suggest once the word comes into the room, we need to be scared and we need to be ready for something really bad. When the reality is we experience trauma exposure all the time. And most of the time, it doesn't result in traumatic damage or harm. And I wish that we didn't have to have so much traumatic exposure, don't get me wrong. But I would guess that one of the reasons the conversation is coming up more in corporate environments is I hope just a general better awareness, but also there are more and more staff who have experienced trauma exposure. At some level, we all did. We were all survivors of a pandemic and we witnessed a lot of things go really wrong. And as a result, we want to think really critically, or we, I would argue we should want to think really critically about what are we going to do with that fact? First, hold it in the room and say, yes, this was a massive social trauma. And we have staff that are still recovering from it, from watching a loved one get hurt or die, from having to watch a community heal itself and not feeling powerful enough to do much about it. I think that it's important to draw a distinction between that exposure and that harm because it, that's where the hope is. Because if we were just to believe that simply experiencing a trauma inevitably damages us, that suggests an inherent lack of resilience. That is not true of human beings. And it suggests we have no power over the choices or the things that happen to us. So as a result, I bring that up usually early on in these conversations about trauma because one of the biggest, I think, obstacles to doing anything about traumatic harm is that myth that trauma exposure is the same thing as harm. But drawing mm -hmm. that distinction is really key, I think, to putting enough hope into the room to allow people to talk about the subject. And so vicarious trauma arises from that. It's, a, I think, a needlessly complicated phrase that doesn't have any salience in our world. Vicarious is not a word that's going to come up very much in our, in our hoop games, Jimmy. I mean, I use it all the time, vicarious. I say to all my friends, oh, you're going to, you know, South America. I'm going to live vicariously through you. Please send that's me true. Yeah. And that's, there's a truth to that, right? And that's a great way to think of it for those that have used that phrase before, because when we talk about living vicariously through somebody, we're going to try to imagine ourselves as them. We're going to try to expand our yeah. moral imagination to contain them. And I know one of your favorite Augmenters episodes is actually where we talked about resilience and uh, firewalking, where it's that mental framework of not having to walk on the coals, but being so emotionally invested and actually feeling somebody else's experience, you have yeah. a firewalk without having to touch it, that you are able to internalize it and then better be able to adapt and adjust mm -hmm. with that as an experience without having the failure. So entrepreneurs talk about hmm. firewalking because it's like, oh, I don't have to necessarily fail six times. I can only maybe fail once or twice, but firewalk other experiences. And that will make me just as strong as the person that's failed six times. Yeah, it's really true. Like there's there's a piece of, when I describe the work roles that I've had, for instance, my last role was in de-radicalization, sometimes called targeted violence prevention. And I would say, yeah, so I helped white supremacists leave the movement. And people would say, oh, which meant to me that there was some part of my job that was legible to them as potentially harmful. And I there were parts of my job that were genuinely harmful. But by doing this work, I was able to expand that moral imagination to expand my compassion for others in a way that other jobs probably weren't going to allow me to. And that had huge benefits for my life more broadly. Because if I'm expanding 
my capacity to understand my clients. I'm also understanding my capacity to understand their family members who are also impacted by that violence. Mm. I'm expanding my understanding of, say, white supremacy, and that's a bigger harm than just what it showed up as in my individual clients' lives. And oh, by the way, how convenient it would be for our social world if it was only my guys that were the cause of white supremacy. That's mm. real convenient to blame them as it lets every other white person off the hook, right? And so if I didn't have that expanded compassion, I couldn't have seen that. And I couldn't have worked as successfully with their families. And I couldn't have shown up in what I hope are successful anti-racist ways in the jobs after. So the connection I'm trying to make between vicarious trauma and empathy, is it the sense that somebody sharing something with you that was really painful for them? And I'm, I'm thinking of trauma maybe, and again, this, I'm not an expert. I just have a mentoring podcast. But I think the idea of this core trauma that maybe all of us have had, right? Because we've all been humans. <laughs> and we've all experienced something in our childhood that kind of is like our core belief about ourselves. We're not good enough. We're um, flawed. We're not, you know, X, Y, and Z. And I'm thinking a little bit more about how that kind of shows up in corporate environments, right? There's kind of this core belief that you have, whether you believe that, you know, whatever it is, we could go on and on about it. Sharing that potentially, authentically, and then that allowance for somebody to be able to show up with empathy for you and then for it to be able to kind of make sense and have a context, maybe about why somebody shows up a certain way or why they keep demonstrating a kind of behavior where you're like, why do they keep doing that? It's like, oh, I see. They believe that they aren't good enough. So they're going to continue to sabotage themselves or they grew up in chaos. So they're going to continue to create more chaos. Is there any role in that, would you say, in mentoring? And is that anywhere connected yeah. to vicarious trauma? Or am I like totally? No, 100%. 100%. I appreciate you bringing okay. up things like core beliefs. Right. So for vicarious trauma, just briefly in the helping field, that looks like you were helping somebody else and their pains and their symptoms are showing up in your life. And the reasons for that are going to vary by person to person. And we still have a lot of learning to do about what the neurological roots of these things are, how they relate to our lived experiences ourselves. But to me, a good takeaway about vicarious trauma is something about your experiences with the people you've cared for that you've supported or as a mentor that you've experienced through your mentee. They stuck with you in a way that challenged something in you and mm. challenged it in a way that unsettles you. So for example, I'll say in, in the world of a trauma therapist, something happened to, let's say a child or a child's family that changed a core belief for me. Like for example, that one of the biggest beliefs we have to work with for folks is a core belief that many people have, which is that good things happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Ooh, and we bring this up in our lives. It kind of settles into us because it would sure be nice, wouldn't it? It'd be great if that was true, that kind of finality to it. Of course, it isn't always true. And if we rely too much on that belief to get through our day, when bad things happen to really good people, and unfortunately good things happen to bad people, that can be really unsettling in a way that's bigger than just the session I had. For a mentor, if you experience something from your mentee's life that you thought wouldn't be possible, that mm. it just defies your imagination for what can happen to a human, that may really unsettle you. And if you're not able to then find support and healing, it may in some cases look like symptoms showing up in your life. But to your, but to your point, Julie, yes, so a mentoring relationship mm. creates the space where you are able to help people craft new beliefs about themselves or the world or realize the ones they had maybe don't need to be thrown out altogether. And yeah. that, that loving connection is a way to reestablish, for instance, if somebody had the belief nobody can be trusted or nobody cares about me or my experiences will always define me. And then someone shows up day after day, week after week and shows you the opposite. That's beautiful. Whoa. That was, I wish I stopped you that effectively on the courts. I feel like I would make so many more shots if I could just speak to you that way and your defense would suffer. Yeah, I, I would just respond with Jeff Bezos is the best entrepreneur of all time. And 
Which, for the record, he says to me to get me heated, so I miss my shots. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's hilarious. That's your trash. That we is have, your trash talking. Very specific trash talk on the court that other people will be like, "What is happening over there?" <laughs> Jeff Bezos is the best entrepreneur. Then we start talking about cookie jars and other things. So. Yeah, basketball form uh, stuff. Yeah, it runs the gamut. You got to come out, Julie. Yeah, I'll be there. I'll be yeah. there. I can't wait. Yep. I have to see Julie's jumper. That'll be interesting. I am tall. <laughs> How can somebody initially, or what are some of the best practices for somebody to initially kind of like not look into the self-reflection mirror of like how they're acting, but instead look into the mirror and realize they are they are internalizing other people's actions, trauma, as you said, and that that vicarious trauma, they can then start seeing affecting their life. And they can then, once they acknowledge it, there's then the opportunity to actually change how it's affecting them. Like, What's a way to shine that light on them about how they're internalizing others? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, right? So like one of the traps, so I'll share what I... I share to helpers. And if you're a mentor, you're a helper too. We're all familiar with the helpers. We try to be helpers. A version of the golden rule, you know, treat others as you'd like to be treated. And Mm. it's this basic moral principle. I support it. It makes a lot of sense. You know, generally speaking, no notes. Works great. The problem is for helpers, they don't need to be told that. They're living that every day. They are flexing their compassion muscles for others every single day. And so that golden rule isn't necessary. What I find is more necessary is a corollary of it. For helpers, I want them to know, treat yourself the way you already treat other people and manually remind people of that. Because especially when you're experiencing trauma exposure every day, that can drift into trauma harm. It can be really tempting for at least two reasons to really invest heavily in your work and not be able to even notice how the symptoms are stacking for you until it might be really harmful. One of those reasons is because your workplace may really obligate you to constantly show up for others, right? Especially if you're short-staffed, especially if your work is um, crisis-oriented or just involving human life and health, right? And that's a lot of corporate roles too, right? Especially anything in the health field. The other reason is if you get an inkling that you're unsettled inside, it can be really tempting to overinvest in your work to avoid that feeling. And you'll get lots I, of I don't know work. what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah right, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure everyone on the call has done that, right? It's, a, it's almost a universal <laughs> human experience. But when do we ever talk about it? We never talk about it. I don't think we ever, as a, as, a, as a group of humans, say, wow, are we all doing this together? And the truth is we are. At and least in America, we are. Yeah. Our system say, exactly. Right? As Americans. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, how do, you, how do you know an American on a vacation? The European will go to the American. Why are you still talking about work? Like you're, you're on vacation. What are you talking about work for? And it's true. Whenever you go to another country and you spend time with other people, the Americans are easy because the other ones only get four days off versus four weeks. And the other is they're still talking about work. They're still thinking about that productivity. And there's such a healthy conversation to have of what does productivity look like for yourself and the people you love? Are you going to retire one day? Are you going to be dying one day and say, man, I wish I'd worked more? Come on. Nobody's going to say that. And I think there's a real opportunity to make those choices today in a compassionate way for yourself and for others. So treat yourself as you treat others. How do you earn the distinction of a helper? Because that's not something that's given. Honestly, I think everyone already is. And I think... That's some rose-colored glasses right there, buddy. I think everyone has the capacity to, and I'll say that the people who need that message, they don't think they need it. They don't think they deserve it. Mm. The helpers that I want to reach are people that are already helpers and don't think of them as such. And to your point, Jimmy, yes, there are other people who claim to be helpers and have not done the work. I'm less interested in the people that are enthusiastic about saying, yes, I'm a helper. I'm more interested in the people that are saying, no, 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 don't look at me. 
I need support for this other person in my life. Those are the people that need that message. Mm. So, so by that logic, yeah, be leery of people who are sort of saying, I have it all figured out. They don't. That's the Monday Word. test. I Word. like it. If you don't yeah. think you deserve the help, then you're a helper. Yes, you need, you, need, you need to treat yourself as you treat others. So is that why when you shoulder me in the sternum, I have this spot on my chest that's like Rob's lo- location <laughs> where he lowers his right shoulder as he goes left and gets me out of the way. And then I usually respond later on in our time playing where he's like, oh, my back hurts. And I'm like, hey, why don't you go see a physical therapist? And he's like, no. <laughs> Let's, this is an audio medium. I just want to remind people of that fact. So let's just let the record state that Jimmy has 20 pounds of muscle on me and two pounds of height. So when he complains about his sternum, it's two pounds right. of height. I, it got to be more than two pounds. <laughs> Sorry, two, two inches. inches of height, 20 pounds of muscle. My bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey, um, no, I'm, I'm sorry I went to the weight room. My bad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was your question? I forgot. I'm thinking about shouldering you again. I can't yeah. remember. <laughs> I feel like we need a video to accompany this pod. <laughs> yeah, well, we'll we're, Rob and I, who have a very aggressive social media pre- presences, we'll make sure to make some videos. Speaking of Rob, I did try to do some uh, deep research, like I do on all of our other guests, and you have a very clean internet history. There's not a whole lot of Robert Mundy's running around that I can find. I can, I can give you the two reasons for why that is. One. My, my my bio family is Monday. That's my, my dad's side of the family. And I, I don't have a ton of contact with a lot of them. So if someone says they're a Monday, I kind of look at them side-eyed, kind of figure <laughs> out how do I know you and should I keep knowing you? Uh, and the other part of it is I did crisis-oriented work for a while in the community and it was important to keep a really clean social media presence. So uh, also I've seen the harm, right, of social media use for so many people. I know I get sucked in. I know what lies in my family history. I don't need that addiction. So I try to stay off knowing, of course, genuinely that there are healthy ways to engage in that media. And as I continue, my wife and I are, um, we just finished our last foster class uh, last night. So we're looking to foster. And one of the lessons I've repeatedly brought up with parents as I've worked with them over the years is, look, we can't just say, I'm just going to keep them off the internet. (laughs) You can't just say, I'm going to take their phone. It doesn't work that way. First, they're going to find a way. And second, where's your media literacy? You know? you should be able to know where the danger specifically of the algorithm for TikTok is. And if you don't, maybe it's a good opportunity to learn from your kids. <laughs> they will gladly yes. help you if you start listening. Yeah, that's a huge topic. That's a huge, huge topic in terms of that responsible. I feel grateful that my daughters were like maybe 10 and 12 when like iPhones came. Mm. They had all those years of, you know, like watching TV together on a big TV, like, <laughs> Right. And media right. was just so different. And I think it's just really hard. I think for both of you with smaller children, like it's really tough, but I guess really it goes back to that role modeling, right? And yeah. that, that conversations and talking, I feel like the thing I really got from this conversation is that there's all this opportunity to actually talk about so many things. And I think people are afraid. Yeah. Like you said, if you're going to bring this up, is it going to be so big that we can't handle it. Yes. As a genuine fear. And I'll, and I tend to go to my experience and go to the, I want to, I want to step that into that and say, let's go to the worst case scenario of that. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was, my first role as a helping professional was doing suicide intervention and prevention, which means I got trained in suicide crisis response. And despite all of my training, despite all of the reminders, I still had the belief that first call at first, same fear everyone has. And the same question they ask, which is what if I say the wrong thing? And even though I had all the training, it didn't matter until my body was settled into the task. 
So for people that are afraid of engaging with their mentors on subjects that perhaps, well, I guess there are two things. If you're not ready to deal with it, that's a great sign that you shouldn't. And that's a great opportunity to learn how to get more comfortable with it, whether that means seeking a therapist, whether that means talking to your mentors and role models. But the other is acknowledging that until your body is settled, you probably won't step into it and with full comfort. What I have to remind myself and what I now remind people when I do these trainings is there's actually almost nothing completely wrong you can say to somebody in suicidal crisis. We can get into the caveats and the nitpicky stuff, but genuinely, if you show up for somebody and just show that you care, Mm. that's enough. You have done more to prevent somebody from dying than almost anybody else could. And that's really meaningful because I I have been trained in a dozen different clinical crisis tools, but none of them has been as valuable as simply showing up and being kind. I think it's a hard lesson for many mentors, including myself, to have learned that there's nowhere to go but kindness when it comes to these conversations when you can't control every other outcome. What you can control Mm -hmm. is how kind you are in the room. Thankfully, that charts a path for a lot of people to being vulnerable, being allowed to be vulnerable and getting support. And for just like a verbal Rorschach test, as fast as you can reply, just tell me what pops into your head around these words. Okay. Uh, And then I'm going to do a fun, you know, like kind of Mad Lib piece that's going to be something new here because you really gave me uh, a different like mindset or like framework for how to approach some difficult conversations. But I need a word for it because language shapes culture. So when I say the word mentor, what pops in your mind? Love. When I say mentee. Scared. Sponsor. Corporate. I knew you were going to go corporate greedy bastards. I knew it. And uh, coach. Role model. All right. Now you mentioned, uh, and I kind of, I'm running with this, but you know, Julie and I love metaphors and getting out into space because that helps us have with the more difficult conversations easier. So I'm talking about the, the vicarious trauma book club and the need for having like a token, something on the table to really share. I don't think book club, I don't know if token is the right term. And like I joked about you and I having basketball as this mm-hmm. like ability to you know, be able to talk better. I mean, Julie, you and I probably just had just like our business troubles as being, you know, CEOs mm-hmm. of small organizations. You know, that was our, you know, we just put it on the table and because we both knew it was there, it made it easier to talk about like real things or, you know, personal things. So Rob, what do you think would be another term for that? Is it like a symbol? I really wanted to say mm-hmm. idol because then I knew you'd get yeah. frustrated about, you know, like, uh, like Taylor Swift or something like that. Taylor's all right in my book. Taylor's all right. She's, she's good. She's good. Okay. She's sweetheart. Sure. For the record, Rob Mundy is pro KT. You're in good company. Yeah, it's a like, great question though, what, what that object represents. I don't think idol is a bad word, actually. Symbol is fine. Let me think on it. I mean, Eminem's line, you know, ever since Prince turned himself into a symbol. Okay. So, <laughs> this, so is a wild, this is a wild way to look at it. It's like, we're familiar with Harry Potter in this room, of course. Correct. Yes. And we're of course familiar with the Horcrux, right? <laughs> yes. The symbol, the object that contains the power portion of it. I think those symbols represent a sort of power in the room because as important as the conversation is, the symbol often gets us there. And I think it doesn't just symbolize obviously the book and the book club idea. It symbolizes our commitment to each other that we at least perfunctorily are going to have read the book or not, but we're going to show up, right? And it's a reminder that we are here for each other. We've externalized some of these, in some ways, pain, but also our compassion for each other. We made it real. Living embodiment of that, I think, can be really powerful as a reminder that even though it's just just words, so to speak, in the room, it's real in our lives and it matters. Okay, I'm going to go deep into some thesauruses and come back later on because right now, I don't think trophy's correct. I'm worried about relic and where that goes. Right. I'm going to go Horcrux just because I think it's funny. It's not good, but... 
I like Horcrux. Yeah, but then I'm just going to picture it's like Horcrux is like the opposite of book club because in the end, Harry takes the sword and plunges it through the book. Like, You're not wrong. I'm not, I'm not challenging you on that. Just I think the word is great, but I hear you. There needs to be a better word, and I'm sure it already exists in some literature. Or we just got to make it up because, like you said, language shapes culture. Rob, thank you for shaping us today. I really appreciate it. I'm glad you got to uh, sink some fadeaways in my face this morning before we got on the call together. And I want to say, Rob, also, it's awesome to meet you. Um, You do incredible work. I'm super inspired and can't wait to hear more. Julie, this was a real treat for me to hear Rob fully rock out on all things that he cares about in his profession. Normally, I just see him practicing his delightfully loping lefty jumper. So to get him off the court and onto the pod was pretty powerful for me. I didn't realize some of the depths that Rob has gone to activate his power of helping others at scale and helping others in some really challenging groups. Well, I have to be honest with you, Jimmy. I was not sure what to expect. (laughs) This is your basketball buddy and you kept calling him Robbie Mundizzle. So I wasn't totally sure who was going to come on the pod, but I was optimistic. And I have to say this was such an incredibly enlightening Mm -hmm. conversation. Even just talking about this idea of trauma-informed mentoring or making sure you're really understanding where people are coming from. I think that was huge. I loved how he talked about masculinity And him in this sort of very female profession and being sometimes the only man that Mm -hmm. a lot of these kids are seeing and spending time with and like what that means in the greater context of the world. And I also just loved his energy and optimism. So, I mean, and he did say you're good at basketball. So I was happy to hear that. I believe that, but I hadn't really gotten it verified by anybody. I just pay him to say that. That's the easy part. That worked. But but yeah, talking about making children comfortable, it's going to come into play later on, like this whole theme of being askable. I loved how Rob brought that up, that, that the best way to become askable with a youth is to find a way to play with them. To find a way, play normally involves something physical, but it could be just a mental game as well. But to find this kind of token that you can both feel and touch and move around, and that unlocks this level of comfort to then make both people prepared to be vulnerable and ask because you've already demonstrated so much connection through engaging in this form of play together. And I came up with you know the metaphor of the book at book club, as my mother talks about going to book club all the time. And I ask, what do people think of the book? And she's like, oh, we never even got to that. <laughs> they just put the book on the table, you know, the, the coffee and wine flows and two hours later she's home and nobody knows what the protagonist said. And that was a big deal to me. And we've already started incorporating that into some of our work about how can you physically represent an unlock of comfort. Yeah. And then it's really about creating that connection ultimately, because you have something to share or something to talk Mm -hmm. about. And certainly in the case with children, right, there's always something like he said, the basketball or something that he can bring into the scenarios. But even with adults, like having something, I was on a mentoring conversation and I realized that what was actually sitting behind me during this conversation was something that was actually also in the woman I was talking to's house as well. So even in our virtual environment where you're not necessarily sitting together, she's like, oh, wait, I have the exact same thing and went and got it and realized we had the exact same object in our house, which is sort of bizarre, but then it created that connection, right? Like we already have that place where we're connecting and then we can have a further conversation. So 
yeah, I think that's a really big idea about even having just something physically as part of the mentoring conversation. And maybe that's why Oprah, the Empress of Connection, started her book club. Or maybe why she gives away a thing. You get her favorite things, not just her favorite ideas. Who wants one? You get a car. (laughs) You get a car. Yeah, I mean, it's true. And knowing Oprah, it was probably very purposeful and not accidental. But there's definitely something here. And Rob giving us that view into the psychology of unlocking vulnerability through this token is is pretty powerful. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we were joking before we started recording about the golden rule and how either people say it's played out or like the only rule. But the idea of flipping the golden rule around, I'm not going to try to say golden backward like stars is rats. No, good. Oh, no. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Perfect. Nailed it. Nedlock. <laughs> Nedlock. Yeah. We're not going to do that. But the idea of saying that, yeah, treat others how you want to be treated, but then treat yourself the same way. Because I think people miss the part of, yeah, you have a, a goal of how you'd like to be treated, but then don't take the care to treat yourself. You know, there's the term, especially that came around the pandemic of, you know, put on your oxygen mask first yes. when the plane's going down because you can't help others if you don't have oxygen. It's really the same thing. And especially for folks who are in these giving surface professions, if you are allowing others to share these like deeply, I won't say like hurtful because like we all kind of hurt in a way, but these like deeply personal just like tribulations, because they're not always troubles, but definitely the trials we're going through, you need to pour water into your own cup at the same time, or you're not going to be able to keep showing up for the people that you want to show up for. Like You have to take care of yourself the way you, you tell others they deserve to be treated. 100,000%. As a parent, as a leader, as all those things, it's so easy to just be there to show up for others and not take care of yourself. That's an awesome reminder. It was really nice. And I liked how Rob said, let the air back in the room when normally yeah. he never stops talking. So he's always <laughs> got all the air. And I'm sure- I mean, you're surrounded. <laughs> I know. <laughs> you, Rob. I, and of course, I'm the one dominating this outro just because I'm so excited to be able to uh, shine light on my friend Rob. And I feel really lucky about finding connections like Rob in this world where literally we met just on a blacktop with a basketball bouncing. There was no other reason that we were just in a geographic neighborhood and both were looking to shoot hoops that day. And then we saw each other again without any planning. And, you know, a couple of years later, we're doing a podcast about vicarious trauma and self-care. I don't know how else to say it, but it felt like the, the universe had a plan for you. The universe definitely had a plan for you. And, and you're both and, very similar. It was really, it made me happy to see this was a guy you're playing basketball with because he'd seem like, you could seem like somebody you could have a really deep conversation with and you could really get to the heart of maybe what's going on, which we like, we all need. It's why Augmenters podcast exists, <laughs> to share relationships like this, to try to help others be part of their community. Augmenters out. Wow, you've made it this far, and we thank you. Hopefully, you enjoyed our episode and discovered new ways to bring more authentic connection into your mentoring relationships. Want to tell them more, Jimmy? Be an Augmenter with us. Visit our website for the best interactive mentoring content at augmenters.us. Share our podcast with someone you care about. Like and subscribe. And yes, really, you following our show and writing a review, it's a big deal. Your actions provide us with the resources to continue our undefeated, unencumbered, prize-winning productions. 
We welcome questions and suggestions via email, hi at augmenters.us, or on social with our handle at augmentershq. We are most active and available on LinkedIn and YouTube. Shout out an earnest thank you to our intrepid producer, Erlen Cato. We appreciate you. Augmenters out. See ya.